So that real life stuff, real life stuff, is a precious commodity these days. I just want to say, as we all know, I am very old. <laughs> But when I was in college in the early 1970s, there was a show called An American Family.、Uh, it was really the first reality. I don't care. Don't let nobody tell you different.、Uh, this was the original reality show. It involved a family called the Louds.、Um, I believe it was a husband and wife with four kids. I actually remember that the mom was Pat Loud, and one of the kids was Lance. Lance and Grant were the two boys. Anyway, it, nothing had ever been done like this. This was just an actual family、uh, with cameras pointed at it. They came unglued. The parents separated and divorced during the time of the making of the show, and America was pretty well transfixed by this. I think it was running on public television too. Anyway, reality television since then, of course, has. Has just lodged in our consciousness. It is here to stay, at least for a long time. We're going to begin the show today by talking in general about that. Then we're going to segue to the Golden Bachelor,、uh, which <laughs> is like reality television but with stomach gas.、Uh, and we'll also make some recommendations at the end for those of you who want to get your feet wet.、Uh, but joining us right now is Danielle Lindemann,、uh, a sociologist and author of the book True Story: What Reality TV Says About Us. Danielle Lindemann, welcome to our show. Hi! Thanks for having me on. So I think, like a lot of people, I would say, just in a general way, I don't watch reality TV. But then I made a list, and I've watched maybe a couple of full seasons of American Idol.、Uh, I watched certainly <laughs> the first season of Survivor, and maybe a little bit more than that. I watched a bunch of The Apprentice, a little bits of Dancing with the Stars. Is it Cake? Although that was for a show we were doing, Kids Baking Championship. I knew one of the kids. Uh, and I definitely saw the one I saw. I think also to do a show about it, we we watched the one where people thought they were dating Prince Harry, but they weren't.、Um, so, and I think to your your point would be Daniel. That's a lot of people. People who say they don't they don't watch reality TV until they kind of check in with themselves. Oh yeah, you definitely watch reality TV. I mean, yeah, a lot of people will tell me that they don't watch reality TV, except fill in the blank here, right? <laughs> and a lot of times, it's people who watch what they see as maybe more highbrow reality TV, like or more wholesome reality TV, like HGTV or The Great British Bake Off, and they don't really consider it. But I would put that under the umbrella of reality TV. And statistics show that a, the vast majority of people are watching reality TV in some form or other. And there is, as you're suggesting, kind of a highbrow, highbrow, middlebrow, lowbrow continuum within the sort of subset of reality TV, right? Yeah, people definitely create hierarchies in their mind. They feel like sort of if reality TV seems like it's kind of teaching us something or showing us how to live in a better in a certain way, people are less likely to actually see it as reality TV. But it's just kind of interesting what people stake out in their minds as being legitimate reality TV. I'll have people tell me. Well, I don't watch reality TV because I don't watch the Kardashians, but they watch you know seven other shows that I would put under the umbrella of reality TV. So it's interesting to see like even within this guilty pleasure genre, people create these hierarchies in their minds of what is and is not legitimate. Yeah, you know the Kardashians are an interesting case,、um, and they're an example of 
They're sort of in the drinking water at this point. I, I don't think I have watched more than 10 minutes of, of, the, of Keeping Up with the Kardashians or any kind of offshoot of that. But I feel like I know a fair amount about the Kardashians kind of ambiently. Uh, you know, you just on second reference, you can, this is so – it permeates culture so much. There's just no way you can not know anything about it, right? Yeah, I say they're kind of out there in the cultural ether. And I often do this exercise with my students when I have, I teach intro to sociology and I have, you know, hundreds of students in my class. I ask the students to make two lists. And one list, name all the current Supreme Court justices that you can. And the other list, name all the Kardashians that you can. You probably see where this is going. For most students, the second list is longer. Um, and that's not to throw them under the bus that they can't name Supreme Court justices and they can name Kardashians, but it's just to show to what extent the Kardashians are really out there in the cultural ether, right? Especially among students who, like you, haven't really seen very many episodes of the show. But, I mean, you can't really get through life in 2023 without being able to name at least one Kardashian. Yeah, I mean, I know it from things like I'm a big fan of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And at one point, she's d- dating a guy who's an immigrant, I think, from Vietnam. And he's learned English by watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And so he kind of talks yes, like that. Yes, I remember uh, that. And he has that kind of like Valley Girl yeah, accent. He right? to- totally gets the accent. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and I do believe that a lot of people like you, people who have serious academic chops, have now kind of stepped forward to say, what's this all about? What, what can we really mine it for? Before we get to you, I want to. Also, a quote from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who kind of has emerged as a really exciting culture critic here in his later life, and actually also yeah. he went on a reality show called Splash, where he dove, which is scary to watch. But um, those who refuse to watch, based on some misguided cultural snobbery, aren't just missing great entertainment; they are overlooking the best social insight into the American psyche since Huck Finn and Jim explored the soul of America on a raft of lost innocence. That's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar writing in his wow. in his newsletter. I think you would you would join in with that sentiment, but I, I put it in your own words, in your own uh, imagery. I mean, what's the what's the really good reason to watch some of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think he said it a lot better than I can. I mean, look, I often say that I'm an evangelist for reality TV, but that doesn't mean that I think everybody should watch it. I mean, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of cultural pastimes that other people like, like watching football that I don't like. Um, I don't think there's anything to be lost by not watching it, but I think there's something to be lost by not taking it seriously and paying attention to it when it really is this much of a cultural juggernaut Again, vastly more people are watching than not when there's a lot of evidence that it impacts our values, the way that we live our lives, our cultural norms. It's really time to pay attention. And as I point out in my book, you know, it really reality TV isn't pure reality. No one thinks it's really real in 2023. It's not a mirror of reality, but it is this kind of funhouse mirror of reality that shows us kind of in exaggerated form our social contours, our norms, our values, our inequalities, for sure. So by tracing the contours of those caricatures, I think we can come to a better understanding of ourselves. But I would never say that everybody has to watch just that we all should pay attention to it as a, like an important cultural touchstone. Right. And some of these things start sort of national mini conversations or mini national conversations. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example that you can dilate upon. I, I, I really can't. But uh, on The Bachelor, on one season of The Bachelor, uh, a certain Ari Leondike proposed to Becca Kufrin. Uh, here's what it sounds like. This is A1 Cat. 
I choose you today, but I choose you every day from here on out. I love you so much. I love you. <laughs> Becca, will you marry me? Of course. Oh my god. Oh my god, it's so pretty. So there were, let's say, some some roller coaster rides uh, in the middle of that relationship, and. You would be able to describe this so much better. But this turned into a national conversation, up to and including a Minnesota state representative drafting a bill to ban the guy from from Minnesota. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> Becca was from Minnesota, yeah. right? So it was like a restraining order in the form of legislation. So, but see a little bit more about that. I mean, not even necessarily about that, although if you want to, go ahead. But there's there are judgments being made both on the screen and in the living room or entertainment lounge where people are watching. People are making decisions. I think you used the word norm a few seconds ago. I mean, it really is an exploration of norms. You can do this, but you can't do that. But say more. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the things that shows us is just the extent to which reality TV has infiltrated politics, which I think is one of the really important reasons to pay attention to the genre, right? Like with, you know, Donald Trump obviously being the most obvious example, would he have been elected president if he hadn't been on The Apprentice? Maybe, but it's reasonable to believe it facilitated his rise Right. And so or even to relatively more minor examples like the the Minnesota example, Um, you know, when when there's like posts online of Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump standing in the Oval Office talking about prison reform. I think that's a giant arrow, you know, pointing to reality TV and saying, okay, this is something that has the potential to move people and influence people either for better or for worse. Um, and so, yeah, so now it's time to pay attention. Yes. Uh, my producer, McCusker, wants me to clarify that uh, that Ari eventually dumped Becca, and that's sort of the problem. Um, right. That is why. Yeah. Yes, that's why that he was – the bill was drafted. Exactly. So, um, so, yeah, I want to just home in on what you're saying because I think The Apprentice itself is a set of alternative facts. I mean The, the Apprentice begins with the premise that Donald Trump was a financially stable – Titan of the business world, uh, known for making really great decisions. And I mean, even as we're speaking, there's a trial unfolding that tends to point to right. some of the holes in that story. Uh, and and so it sold that initial sort of alternative version of reality. But for me, one of my fascinations about this is you now not all reality shows involve elimination, but an awful lot of them do. And, and I think that's one of the fantasies they're selling. That in your real life. <clears throat> It's really hard to get rid of people. I mean, it's hard to fire a person these days, even if they're <laughs> kind of dysfunctioning within their work environment. Most of the people that you have uh, Thanksgiving dinner with this year will be the people you will have it with next year. And I mean, you know, people don't go away. They stay around, except in this the fantasy world of elimination shows, you can get rid of somebody. Like on Survivor, if somebody's a jerk, you could probably get rid of them. Uh, And I think that's a very appealing fantasy and maybe even one that Trump carried into the White House. You know, he would hire and fire pretty quickly there. uh, And even that sort of drain the swamp, it's the fantasy, right, of getting rid of what you don't want. 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much to unpack there, right? Like one of the things that's happening is that Trump is kind of using the conventions of reality TV to facilitate his rise, right? This idea that you can just drop people or even the idea that people, you know, the reality TV traffics in these broad archetypal characters. And so he thinks about people in terms of broad archetypes, like the nasty woman or the bad ombre, even the idea of a cliffhanger, right? I'll tell you who the next Supreme Court justice nominee is, but wait until tomorrow <laughs> at 8 p.m., you know, kind of thing. So he was really able to harness these tropes, you know, very successfully for himself. I mean, but also it's the idea that going back to what you were saying about, yeah, we might argue with someone at work, but we can't get rid of them. I think that's true. And I think, you know, it's been pointed out that reality TV allows us to live in a kind of hyper reality where we can sort of see it as resembling our own lives in certain ways. Like, yeah, we date people, we have colleagues, right? But reality TV kind of ramps it up, right? Like now you're dating someone, you're dating The Bachelor, and you're in, you're flying in a hot air balloon over Tuscany, right? And there are like eight other people also vying for his hand. So you live in this kind of like heightened world um, that's much more interesting than your own reality. So yeah, I totally agree that in some ways it allows us to imagine or fantasize doing things that we want to do in our own mundane situations in everyday life. And yes, and, and I think just to uh, build on what you just said there too, part of the uh, the other part of this is, you know, when I look around at the really the people that I admire who've really kind of influenced me culturally, I know that Paul Simon was born with more songwriting talent than <laughs> I was. He's just a really really talented guy. I could work on my singing every day and never sing like Stevie Wonder, um, you know. And and Emily St. John Mandel is just an incredible novelist. I probably you know never had her talent. But what happens on reality television is a lot is a lot is the people who are kind of you know normally gifted <laughs> or even subnormally yeah. gifted get elevated into really important high profile role, roles. The 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 gap between the professional and the amateur begins to shrink quite a bit, and I think that's kind of tantalizing, right? Tantalizing, right? The idea, and it kind of ties into our new, you know, idea of celebrity—the kind of DIY celebrity who can become famous just on just by you know recording themselves and posting a video on TikTok or on YouTube, right? You don't actually need a quote-unquote talent in order to be successful or famous. Although I would push back a little bit on that, that that's new. I mean, it's always mm -hmm. been true that there are people who were famous for being famous. The Kardashians didn't invent that. Like royalty are famous for being part of a family, not because of any particular talent they have necessarily. And I would also push back on the idea that like most reality stars don't have talent. I think there, it takes a certain type of, maybe people don't see it as worthwhile, but it takes a certain type of talent to remain riveting reality TV, I think it would be a mistake to say that, you know, a family like the Kardashians is just kind of stumbling into success. I think I think they know how to draw an audience and one could argue whether or not you see that as socially worthwhile, one could argue that that's a talent in and of itself. Uh, I acknowledge your pushback, and I, I think there's a lot of validity to it. And oddly enough, the, Car the name Kardashian became famous during the OJ trial. The OJ trial also coughed up people like Kato Kalin and Faye Resnick and people like that who, who were kind of famous mainly because of their association with this horrible uh, and lurid case. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I also think about what the talents are these days, and it seems to me that one of the talents – 
is having very few boundaries. I mean, Bethany yeah. Frank, to be Bethany Frankel, you have to be the kind of person who says to the producer, I have a gynecologist appointment today. Come on along. Let's bring the camera, <laughs> camera crew. You know, right. I, mean, the, the, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether to be worried about that. You know, that, that that's suddenly something that's rewarded. O, kind of oversharing becomes an actual talent. Well, of course. And that's, you know, a sign of our broader society, too, right? With the advent of social media, you know, we've decided it's a good idea to just, like, post our dinners, you know, and take a picture of our dinner and post it because our friends might like to see <laughs> what we're eating tonight. And so this idea of what we see is, I don't know, over, but but sharing more and more is, you know, not just confined to the area of reality TV. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of norms, too, I'm wondering how many norms get kind of invented by reality TV. I know, for example, that there seems to be some documented evidence that more people go on hot tub dates. <laughs> Maybe because yes. such, I mean, things that are tropes, I assume, are becoming tropes uh, out in the real world, so to speak. Yeah, there's evidence that heavy watchers of reality TV. Now, it's hard to establish causation, like does reality TV cause these things? But it is true that heavy watchers of reality TV are more likely to go on hot tub dates than non-heavy watchers of reality TV. And then when you start to think about it, there are a lot of hot tubs on reality TV. So I could see that, you know, just a tiny way that something from reality TV has now become a little bit more normalized in the culture. Yeah. I mean, if we'd all bought stock in Jacuzzi about 20 or 25 years ago, I mean, we'd probably be. There you go. Only we'd known. We could probably afford our own hot tub now. Um, So uh, in some ways, reality TV was tailor made for the 21st century where there was also going to be some labor movements in the entertainment industry having periodic strikes. And and I, I think probably some people who are writers who are members of the Writers Guild of America specifically, look at this and go, ah, you know, it's hard enough the way they're screwing us with streaming revenues and stuff like that. But then there are these shows that require relatively little writing, although probably maybe a little bit more writing than the show likes to acknowledge. And, And I wonder whether as somebody who values culture, scholarship, academia, literature, whether that worries you at all. I mean, but that's always been true, right? Like sports are a huge draw in entertainment and there's no writing there. So, I mean, I think there's, it's not an either or. I think there's room for all. There's room for quote unquote, like highbrow scripted TV. And there's also room for reality TV. It's interesting though, you know, you you brought it to the idea of, you know, the writer's strike and unionization. I think it's interesting because people tend to not have a lot of sympathy for reality TV stars who oftentimes are really, you know, getting the short end of the stick when it comes to a lot of them are not compensated. Even their crews oftentimes are not unionized, do not receive union wages. During the really dark days of the pandemic, reality TV kept rolling when scripted shows stopped. I mean, so there are a lot of, you know, potential abuses there. And I think it's interesting to think about why and why on reality TV. And Again, I think it goes back to this idea that people are not necessarily sympathetic to people on reality TV, like as they don't value them as performers, as people who are creating content. They just kind of see them as, you know, famous for being famous. They're just being filmed, living their lives, 
why should we lump them in with us who are doing valuable work? So I think that's a really interesting cultural distinction that people make. Yeah. I also think reality TV does kind of seep into all kinds of things. You mentioned sports. Anybody who thinks that Aaron Rodgers isn't kind of a reality show already, uh, you know, right. dating Shailene Woodley, dating Danica Patrick, taking ayahuasca on retreats and stuff like that. Um, and, and there is even on HBO a sort of reality sports TV show that just kind of looks at a team getting ready. I've forgotten the name of it. But um, Hard Knocks, that's what I was thinking. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, Hard Knocks, yeah. right, yeah. So um, we should just m- maybe uh, pause over something you said earlier because I think it's really important, which is – you know, reality TV, I think, res- does respond a little bit to a sense that maybe the the gates to entertainment success were, were high and locked and favored a chosen few and who gets to decide that Leo DiCaprio is a great actor and I'm not and that kind of stuff. And there's a way in which uh, I think reality TV seems a little less curated so somebody can get in there and, and who's not already famous and be famous. Um, but it seems like TikTok is almost a response to reality TV. It's it's like people who think Survivor is way over curated because they, they can just make their own stuff and just be stars if they're any good at it without even having to get to know Ryan Seacrest or somebody. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, that's I think the way the the way that reality TV is going. Right, this is like these like individual user generated like nuggets of content. I mean, I even think, you know, talking to my students who are like early 20s, late teens, they see something like The Real Housewives as kind of like antiquated. Why would I sit down and watch a show when I can just scroll through my reels or whatever? Um, And so, yeah, that does seem to be the direction that entertainment is heading. But at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, Meryl Streep is out of a job, right? There's still (laughs) scripted content is still going to exist it's interesting that people kind of see the rise of reality TV as threatening to more highbrow forms of media when I would argue that there's room for all. Right. Meryl Streep just signed a deal to play Honey Boo Boo's mom in the, in the film remake, so she'll, she'll be fine. So I know you have to go. And Daniel Lindemann, a sociologist and author of the book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. I, I know you have to go. And it's a really hard, it's been a hard decision for me to make to end this segment. But I just want to say. I don't know. I'm fired. You're a, you're a lovely person and you have a good heart. And I just wish you the best. But thanks for being on the first segment of the show today. We're going to talk about the Golden <laughs> Bachelor when we come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. 
Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers. So we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. isn't the theme song of The Golden Bachelor. It's by Gretchen Peters. It's actually a great song. Uh, all right. So we're going to talk about The Golden Bachelor right now. And we're going to talk to Kay Brown, who's the host of The Bachelor recap podcast, The Bachelor, uh, and uh, Murray <laughs> Silkoff. I don't know if I did that right. Uh, Murray Silkoff yeah. is a regular essayist <laughs> for The New York Times Magazine. I was sitting reading it on a recent Sunday morning, and I thought, oh, well, she is going to have to be on this episode. Uh, she re- recently <laughs> wrote uh, about why it terrifies her. So um, Kay Brown, maybe for people who somehow or other are not aware of this incredible smash hit, which it really is. Um, explain real quickly, Kay, what happens on The Golden Bachelor. Okay, so The Golden Bachelor is essentially just like The Bachelor or Bachelorette, except we have Gary, who is a 71-year-old man. He has this incredible story, and they ha- he has all of these amazing contestants who are all between the ages of 60 and 71, and they're all fighting for his love. And it's honestly an amazing tearjerker. I was not expecting to love the show as much as I do. And it's one of my favorite shows that I've watched on reality TV. Well, I think one of the premises here, too. Actually, before we do that, let's meet Gary. Because, like, he's so important uh, to this whole conversation. This is B1 Cat. He posts his thirst traps in a leather-bound album. His DMs have postage. He gets the early bird special anytime he wants. If you call him, he'll answer the phone. He doesn't have gray hair. He has wisdom highlights. Florida wants to retire and move to him. He's Gary. And I'm your first golden bachelor. So, Gary, yeah, he's 71 years old. He's from Indiana. He's widowed. Uh, and that's a big thing, right? I mean, Kay, one of the things I think that's driven home by this, I don't, haven't watched that much of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, but The Golden Bachelor, these people have, as they continuously say, lived. They've taken some hard knocks. He's lost his wife of 45 years or whatever it is. Uh, and and there is a sense that for these people, it's it's – I don't know. It's the drama has some kind of heightened quality just because of the living they've done. Yeah. I mean, you take the regular bachelor and bachelorette. And I think this narrative of 25, 24 year olds 
um, not being able to find love is kind of, we're over that. <laughs> we're, we don't believe it anymore. It's like, okay, come on. I mean, most people aren't getting married until much later anyways now. And so when you have these people who have been through it all, have seen that and are really like looking for that last chance, because I also think that we forget like they might not have anybody and they're looking for somebody too. And the stakes feel higher and you find yourself rooting for them more because it might be harder for them, you know? Oh, yes. Um, and, and they they let you know how hard it really is, too. And so, Murray, yes. ex- explain why this this whole thing, in the words of the headline, terrified you. I mean, it's not the the show itself that terrifies me. It's just this new messaging um, around how you should be or how you could be or what you might aspire to be uh, in your great old age, right? So, you know, the, the oldest contestant in The Bachelor is actually, in The Golden Bachelor is actually 75 years old. And, you know, anybody who's seen the show will agree that the aesthetic that these women are hewing to is very much the same as that of the regular Bachelor, right? So you've got women in their 60s, women in their 70s, they've all got unbelievably athletic bodies, very slim, very big boobs, snatched cheekbones, you know, the whole thing. So you've got women who are in their 60s and 70s, as far as I'm concerned, needing to hew to this aesthetic uh, of being in your 20s. And it doesn't truly terrify me. There's a lot more going on in the world right now that terrifies me a heck of a lot. Did we leave, did we just lose her? I think she actually muted. Oh, she might have muted by mistake. Okay, we'll get her back. So, um, but Kate, I'm unmuted. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Oh, oh that's Sorry okay. About so, that. No, you don't yeah. worry about this. Yeah. This, is, real, so, this mean, is reality TV. Things happen, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So headlines will be headlines, you know. But I do think that it's annoying and irritating that as boomers age, we're seeing a lot more of this stuff on mainstream TV and in advertisements and stuff like that, that in order to be a successful, quote unquote, old person, you have to not age. In order to be a respected woman in her 60s, in her 70s, or even staring down the barrel at 80, you know, wearing hot pants, wearing stilettos to breakfast, giggling like a schoolgirl, you know, all this stuff. Uh, is some new standard. And the thing more than terrifying is I find it exhausting. I'm 50, okay? I'm no spring chicken myself. The last thing I want to think as I edge into my senior years is that I still need to worry about having perky boobs. You know, being in shape, yes. Having a wonderful life that's full of all kinds of diverse things, yes. Finding love, fantastic. But this whole thing of like women prancing around in bathing suits with bodies that like nobody in their 70s can look like this very easily. You know, it's getting harder and harder and harder to say, yes, I can. Well, you know, um, I think that she might have cut out again. But, Kay, let's go yeah. to you for a second. Uh, the counter narrative, I would think, it, well, there's two possible counter narratives. Let's talk, talk about both of them. So last night in the Women, <laughs> Women Tell All episode, one thing that was made very clear is that that intestinal gas uh, is yeah. kind of a trope on this show, Kay, which I think is very different probably from The Bachelor and Bachelorette. I mean, you know, stumbling, falling, not playing pickleball very well. I mean, the show does price in a certain amount of... Uh, of truth about what's possible and what's not possible as you get old. 
Yeah, I think it definitely has. I agree with um, her as well. But I also think on the other side of it, like you're saying, is that they are showing that these women like don't care. It's like, this is what it is. This is who we are. We fart. We have gas. We um, aren't great at like super athletic all the time. And I think that helps um, with this other side of the narrative too, keeping them uh, you know, fun and making you want to root for them even more. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, I mean, so much of watching reality television, particularly an elimination show like this, is there is a fair amount of judging that we enjoy doing, right? I mean, we like this person of better course. than that person. And so I was <laughs> I was amazed just watching it last night how quickly I was sucked into that process. So there's a woman named Faith who I, you know, came near to the end but didn't quite make it. And she's seems kind of needy. <laughs> but she's to, to Marie's point, she's sitting there in this like super booby dress talking about how geez, for the first time her two sons weren't worried about her because maybe this guy was coming into her life. And I'm thinking, are these is this really the best way, <laughs> way to deal with that? I, and I found myself starting to judge her. My partner came in. She started watching, made a little comment about the dress and the boobs. Uh, but that's part of the process of watching a show like that. I like that better than I like this. Um, and, and maybe back to our, our first guest point, you're, you're kind of palpating the norms of society to which you subscribe. But Kate, go ahead. And then we'll also hear from Maria about this. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right. It's sort of like it's, giving a little bit of like neediness or just um, over dramatic a bit. But at the same time, I think it really plays towards, you know, um, the women or men in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties having, it's like the same type of reaction. It's like, why, why am I still unable to find someone? And it, it worried me a little bit at first. I was like, Oh my God, am I going to be, you know, 65 <laughs> and still being like, why doesn't he want me? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it has this like relatable, um, factor where no matter what age you are, you could still be going through this. Yeah, I just don't want to die alone on ABC. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> none of us do. <laughs> so, Murray, one of your commenters said an interesting thing, and that, that I think is very true. Uh, the commenter sort of said Gary is the unicorn in the sense that Gary's yeah. 71. He takes good care of himself. He dresses. I mean, I'm sure they gave him a new haircut and a new wardrobe and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm 69 years old. Really, at, at my age, if I can sit up and cut my own meat, you know, that's like I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> well whereas women really do maintain themselves um, much more, I think, as a species. Um, and Maria, th that struck me. There's kind of a double standard unfairness even in the way the show is set up, right? There's a mm -hmm. 71-year-old guy who has his pick of 22 different women, including a lot of women who are 60 or 61. Um, right. I don't know. I felt, Maria, like there was some gendered quality to all that. I mean, for sure, you know, you know, a lot of people in the comments section uh, wrote something interesting, which is like, I can't wait for The Bachelorette, right? Is there going to be, you know, a, a similar show where there's a woman who's 72 and then there are all these male suitors, right, who are trying to, you know, curry her love or her favor or whatever. And I think we can all agree that, like, it's a bit harder to imagine so that is showing you, you know, the gender divide is, you know, those the same age old, you know, prejudices and whatever are 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 still very much there. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, 
Gary, Gary, I don't know. Well, let's hear, the, a, little uh, bit, let's hear a little bit more Gary, Gary here. Uh, this is a sneak peek for what's coming next on The Golden Bachelor. Uh, you're going to hear Gary and I think at least two of the 22 women. This is B2Cat. People want to know what happens in these fantasy suites. Oh, my God. I really love the idea of pillow talk. But, yeah, people my age still knock boots. When's the last time you had sex? <laughs> he told me he loves me, but I don't know what he said to her. I think you're the one. No matter what, someone is going to come out of this situation hurt beyond what I can imagine. That just isn't worth all of it. I took a good person and broke their heart. The only time I've ever felt worse in my whole life is when my wife passed away. And this is a god close second. There's a lot of crying on the show. Um, like a lot of crying. Uh, and Kay... <sighs> One of the things, I, I want both you and Marie to talk about this. One of the favorite words, I think, of reality TV, particularly sort of romance-themed bachelor-type shows, is vulnerable and vulnerability. And people say, you know, I feel safe here and I, I can let myself be vulnerable. And you know, on the ba- Golden Bachelor, it's like my emotions are activated for the first time in 20 or 30 years. You know, I feel so alive and vulnerable. And every time they say vulnerable, I think, this is the worst place to go if you're vulnerable, right? <laughs> 21 of you are getting dumped. Uh, it, it just seems <laughs> like a very uh, strange way to, to, to do that. Um, I mean, obviously, there are appeals for it. I don't know. I'm just sort of babbling. Okay, cut me off and say something that makes more sense. No, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think this is if you're trying to be vulnerable and really open yourself up to someone. Maybe going on a show with 30 women uh, all competing for the same guy on national television isn't the place for you to get your heart broken. And I think it's also really hard to become that vulnerable um, when you have these cameras on you. Like that's really difficult, but you're put in a situation where you don't have phones, you don't have TV, you don't have access to what's going on around you at all. You're cut off from everything else. So you kind of are put in this um, world where of course you're gonna fall in love with this guy because All you have to do, all you're able to do right now is talk to these other women about this guy because you don't really have anything else to talk about. Nothing else is going on. It's just him um, (laughs) that you're seeing every day that you're thinking about 24-7 because that's all you have. And so it is easy to fall in love in these sort of situations because you're in like a warped sense of reality. But becoming vulnerable as well is... um, might be detrimental to what actually happens afterwards. I mean, the I think that a lot of therapy needs to be done after leaving reality television and um, trying to go back out there and date again. <laughs> oh, yeah. These, I hope there's a big budget for that at ABC. These people are going to need, need a lot right. of help uh, when this is all over. Yeah. And, you know, Murray, I, I think it's probably worth saying that there are there are some redeeming qualities to this show, even if you you know have some vast misgivings about it. To me, one of the things that I'm noticing is it because these women are older, they, I don't know, there's a sense that they, they've been to a few rodeos already. And I don't really know that much about reality television, but there seem to be maybe a little less backbiting. I guess there's been one famous little sort of outburst on the show, but the women seem generally sympathetic towards one another. Uh, there was a thing last night where one of the women's best friends had died kind of as the show started to go on the air. And like it seemed like just pretty much all of the contestants were crying. I thought real tears. And and maybe, Murray, one of the suggestions here, as we get older, it's a little bit less of a zero-sum game, even though it still is on The Golden Bachelor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, look, I mean, yes, these people have lived many decades. And obviously, you know, as you live long, life happens, right? So I think it would have been crazy editorially to try to present people in their 60s and their 70s as not having gone through, you know, problems with their children's and divorce and widowhood and death and losing their jobs or moving or, you know, all the different chapters of life, you know, all of which are beautiful in their own right. Um, I guess what I'm canvassing for with um, shows like this, you know, because this isn't going to be the last one. You know, boomers are the ones, boomers plus are the ones who are watching network television. There's going to be a heck of a lot more pickleball championships to come, right? This is who's watching TV now. The kids are not watching ABC. Um, what I would like to see is better representation of people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. There's all different types of people out there. Don't throw everyone into like a form-fitting Hervé Léger ball gown and say that's what it means to be 70. That's what it means to be a successful 75-year-old woman. I hate it. Mm. I like the show. I mean, who doesn't like the show? It's really fun to watch. Right. Well, but I mean, you know, I, it's it's more the messaging that that bothers me. It's 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 really an issue mm. beyond the show than than the show itself. Right. Well, you know, I mean, Max just brought back six feet under, so that's another kind of representation. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. Kay Brown is host of the Bachelor podcast. <laughs> She's the host of the Bachelor Recap podcast. Uh, Marie Silkoff is a regular essayist with the New York Times Magazine. Thanks to both of you very much. You're going to have to go now, but I just, <laughs> I just feel really bad about saying goodbye. <laughs> In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Quick thanks to McCusker, who's producing this episode, and Cat Pastor, who's our technical producer. One reason I decided to do this episode is because Cat Pastor uh, and McCusker and Lily Tyson, our senior producer, all of whom are very smart people, watch a lot of reality TV. So uh, on Fridays, typically we make recommendations at the end of the show. Cat uh, is here to do that, uh, the assistant radio operations manager at Connecticut Public. Also, uh, Andrew, Andy Denart, uh, founder and editor of realityblurred.com. So um, maybe, Andy, uh, maybe you guys can kind of take turns making your recommendations. That feels uh, very nice. So Andy, maybe start. For somebody who wants to get their feet wet, wants to dip their beaks in the world of reality TV, uh, pick one and just talk really quickly about it. 
Sure. Um, yeah, so many options out there. So wherever you would like to go, I think you can you can find something. By the way, if we want to turn this into a competition, I'm glad to do that. And we can you know <laughs> vote somebody out at the end of it and make sure that one of us is leaving crying just yeah. to keep up with the theme of the show. Cat is definitely um, staying, but continue. Yeah. So I think if you want to go um, to just something, I think I like a good competition show with people who have a lot of talent. And I'm going to recommend just the first show is something called The Great Pottery Throwdown. It's on HBO Max or what's now just called Max. Um, it's actually a British show and it's exactly like it sounds. It's the pottery competition. And A, the people who are on it are brilliant artists and create some really amazing work. Um, the challenges are interesting and inventive. Like one of the sort of annual challenges now is to create a working toilet, um, which uh, out of clay. So that is something that I never knew someone could even do. And I'm impressed by watching that. And the best part about the show, honestly, uh, as a minor spoiler, is that one of the uh, series judges, uh, when he sees work that moves him, even if the work is not good, or if it just has a lot of effort and has failed, he will actually start crying. So he's basically <laughs> the opposite of Simon Cowell or what you think of reality TV judges who just yell at and humiliate people. Um, instead, he's offering warm support and clearly emotional um He's clearly emotionally moved by what he's seeing. So the great pottery throwdown on Max. All right. So, Andy, hold your next thought. Kat, uh, your turn. What are you going to recommend? Well, I'm going to recommend something that I've recommended a lot of times before, and I do think that it's a good thing to start off with. It's a show on Bravo called Below Deck. The premise of the show is um, it follows basically the people who work on yachts that very rich people rent out. They're the wait staff, the deck crew, um, sometimes engineers, and the captain. Um, and this is definitely like a pressure cooker situation because they're in very close quarters with all these cameras and all these crazy guests. And there's still drama, even though, according to maritime law, they have to stay sober while on charter. So while on charter, there's still drama between them when they're sober. And then on their nights off, they get devastatingly drunk. Like, I've never seen so many people fall out of a hot tub. I, I didn't even think that was possible. Um, and then the next day... They have to get their act together, pick up guests, um, act like they didn't ruin each other's lives the night before, get through the charter, and then pick it back up after. I think it's a great show, and I'm very angry that nobody told me that uh, getting a job like that when I was 21 was an option. <laughs> All right. So, Andy, I'm going to um, ask you for a specific one because I think it's something my partner and I will probably try out. It's called The Traitors. It's on Peacock. Tell us about The Traitors. Uh, the Traders is a brand new format this year, uh, came out on Peacock, like you said earlier this year um, in January, and a new season will be coming this next January. If you've ever played the party game Mafia, where um, people are sort of assigned various roles and then people get, you know, pretend murdered, um, you know the general format of the show. And so it's basically three people are sort of um, secretly... Uh, working against the other people who are trying to suss out who the actual traders are. Uh, the show is good for that reason. And there's a lot of interesting competition and sort of strategy that unfolds among that. But what you really want to watch for is Alan coming as host of the show. Um, he is in this castle in the Scottish uh, countryside and his everything from his line readings to his reactions to what's happening during challenges is absolutely delightful. And it sort of sets the mood and tone of the show, which makes all of the gameplay stuff 
much, much more enjoyable, um, which it would probably already be enjoyable, but it's uh, just really heightened by him. And if you love the the U.S. traders, there's actually two other seasons, um, one from Australia and one from the U.K. that are on Peacock. And the fascinating thing, just uh, as a final note about the U.K. version of the traders, is that it's almost identical to the U.S. version, just with a different host and cast. And it's really rare in reality TV. We get to see the same thing play out twice, just mm. with different people. Um, so it's just really cool. It's totally different game, totally different vibe, also totally wonderful. So um, yeah, uh, check that out. And uh, hopefully this next season will be as good as the first. Alan Cumming is going to be what gets my partner to agree to watch this. Um, so um, Kat, you want to stay on Peacock and talk about the Big D? Yes, I love the Big D. Um, that is a new edition this year, I think, and it comes after Temptation Island, which is also an all-timer. But the premise of the Big D is you're stuck in a house. There are all these divorced couples stuck in a house together, and they all have to date and move on in front of each other. And these are all actually, this is one of the shows where um, it's people probably around my age or a little bit older. I'm 35. And um, the the amount I was just shocked at the amount of drama and chaos that this show produced because I figured maybe somebody would have like some level of decorum um, having grew up with reality TV and knowing the consequences of if like the audience doesn't like you or something. Nope, not at all. This show is pure chaos. I think they also make them share the couples share rooms, <laughs> the divorced couples. So if they, you know, want to go have relations with someone else, it's very obvious. It's, it's just a great show. And watch Temptation Island right before it, too. Another great one. All right, Andy, uh, you got uh, maybe about 90 seconds. Uh, pick, pick another one to wrap us up with. Sure. I'll give you a, a genre, which is really smart person travels around the country meeting other people and learning about stuff and beautiful cinematography and lots of education. Uh, most recently, America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston, which was on PBS for its second season this year. You can still find that online and on demand and in reruns. Um, on Hulu, Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi, the host of Top Chef, who goes around and learns about America's culinary traditions, like how beer and uh, hot dogs and bratwurst became a thing in Milwaukee. And then, of course, the sort of uh, OG of this, which was Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, which you can stream on Max and watch him be led by his curiosity as he meets people around the world. And I think that's something we really need right now is just the idea that we can learn from each other and learn about history and uh, see what things are, you know, what's going on uh, if we can be led by curiosity instead of judgment or um, sadness. Yeah, that, those all sound great. I actually worked with Baratunde Thurston on stage uh, a few years ago, and he was very funny and very nice. I'm glad to see that he's uh, he's doing well. He's got a gig here. All right, we probably shouldn't start another one, so let me just, uh, first of all, thank uh, Andy Denart, uh, founder and editor of Reality Blurred, all one word, dot com. You want to know a little bit more about the kinds of things that he's recommending here, and also thanks to Cat Pastor, uh, the assistant radio operations manager at Connecticut Public. By the way, in our um, fortnightly newsletter, the Nose Letter, which which is coming out tomorrow. Uh, Kat, I don't know if, she's, if you're doing it this week, but Kat often will make recommendations there for a uh, reality. Yeah, I'm going to pick up later. <laughs> I'm I'm a binge watcher by nature, so I'm letting all the new TV build up so I could dedicate like three straight days to it. <laughs> all right. I think we could probably say goodbye now if there's enough music to run, but this is really fun. I hope you enjoyed it too. 